This episode, I'm joined by Wolfgang Palava, who is a philosopher and Catholic theologian. He is the author of René Girard's Mimetic Theory and Transforming the Sacred into Saintliness, Reflecting on Violence and Religion with René Girard. In this episode, we discuss the mimetic theory of René Girard, alongside discussions on Christian spirituality, desire, Thomas Hobbes, violence, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Emetics Podcast or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. So, Wolfgang Palava, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Uh, we are going to be discussing, sort of, we're going to be discussing the work of uh, René Girard, but we're also going to be discussing your two texts on him, one which has been recently published and one which was published in 2013. So the first one was uh, René Girard's Mimetic Theory, which focuses on, as you would imagine, René Girard's Mimetic Theory and Mimesis, um, which sort of is found throughout sort of it's sort of something i don't think gerard could ever get away with once he had that that realization and then your second text which you sent to me uh, published just last year uh, transforming the sacred into saintliness reflecting on violence and religion with rene gerard now with gerard like many you know many other philosophers all of his all of his sort of key themes and ideas most notably mimetics and mimesis the sacred the scapegoat, and then violence in relation to religion, these are always, almost always, touching on one another. They're not, you know, they're not, uh, how can we say, completely separate. They can't really be taken completely on their own. They're always in combination with these other things. So I think in that sense, you know, this conversation should sort of flow quite nicely into certain avenues of Girard's thought. But before we sort of jump in, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how, you know, how you came to be working with Girard and... Um, yeah, what is it you do? Yeah, let me first say thanks for inviting me. I'm happy and glad to uh, help to get to a better understanding of Girard's mimetic theory. So my engagement in some way goes back to two uh, two interests in my my early years as a uh, still in school. That was first of all I was very much interested in ethnology, in anthropology, so was reading books in that regard. When I, my family uttered the wish to, to become an expert in that field, I'm an Austrian and Austria is not a colonial power, never was. Even when it was an empire, it was not a colonial power. So there is, there are no anthropologists uh, or not a lot uh, in the tradition compared to France or the United Kingdom. So uh, that idea was completely dismissed. And then I followed in the footsteps of my father and got educated as a technician in electronics and communicational engineering. And in the last years of this special high school, I became a member of the Catholic Youth Movement, and that was in the late 70s early 80s of the last century and we were heavily engaged in the peace movement against the establishment of Pershing II uh, rockets and missiles and uh, so I became a a member of the peace movement and uh, this engagement in peace movement turned me to studying theology and so in 1979 I started to study Catholic theology at the University of Innsbruck. And quite soon I came across a Swiss Jesuit with the name Raymond Schwager, who was teaching dogmatics at the Catholic theological faculty at the University of Innsbruck. And Raymond Schwager was one of the first theologians who engaged deeply with Girard. So the two of them met, I think, in 1974. And they had a, a lot of exchanges, meetings. Just recently, the letter exchange between the two of them was published. And both both of them published in 1978, so just a year before I started studying, books that engaged for the first time with the Bible from the perspective of mathematics theory. So Raymond Schwager's book title, I refer to the English translations, was Must There Be Scapegoats? 
and Girard's book, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, both came out in 1978 and both were for the first time reading the Bible with the help of earlier anthropological insights by René Girard. So this was 1979 and uh, I met Girard in the context of uh, Raymond Schwager in 1986 in, a, in Germany at the conference for the first time. And at that time, I started to work on my dissertation, which was a, a, a Girardian reading of the relationship between religion and politics and the work of these political philosophers, Thomas Hobbes. And after I finished that, I was eager to go to Stanford University for a whole year to study closer with Girard. I was there at the Center of International Security and Arms Control, which was not a Girardian center, but gave me as, an, as someone who wanted to become an ethicist, uh, working also in peace ethics and political philosophy, a place there. But it was also a good opportunity to meet about every second week in a little study group with Girard. And I also uh, went to lectures of him on Shakespeare and to a special seminar on Aeschylus, uh, Greek tragedies. And so I spent a year there. When I went back to Innsbruck, I gave for over 10 years an uh, introductory course to students in mimetic theory. And the outcome of these 10 years of teaching was my book on René Girard's mimetic theory. And I remained a close collaborator of Girard and I met him afterwards quite often and was in contact until his death in 2015. So it became a Girardian and I still claim to try to unfold the deeper meanings and insights of this anthropological theory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess it's a, a, a piece of sort of philosophical history in a way, even though he's, he's as you said, he passed away quite recently, just six years ago. Um, what was, what was as, as someone who was close to him, what was Girard, you know, like as a, as a teacher and as a, as a person? I mean, as a teacher, he was really a very uh, a teacher who got the students excited. So I went to his classes on Shakespeare. This was a course for undergraduates, but there were about 70, 80, maybe 100 people in a, in a large uh, lecture hall. But he doesn't have, he didn't have a, a manuscript or so, so as you would Ex, uh, expect from a German style of lecturing. He always saw uh, there were certain plays of Shakespeare dedicated to each uh, course uh, lesson and he always had just uh, this particular play or, or the plays for this particular lecture with him and freely talked about those, tried to engage the students so it was a lot of fun and uh, he was a great teacher. Uh, students liked him and was was just exciting to, to listen to him. And as a person, he was a quite shy person. He was he was also a, a modest person. So he, for instance, never talked about Girardian theory or Girardianism. So the term mimetic theory was coined by him also differ a little bit from uh, uh, for too strong focus on himself as a person and to see it as a larger project going beyond his own uh, personal work. Okay. He almost seems to be one of uh, the, the last, you know, the last bastions of that style of teaching, you know, without a, without a manuscript script, the ability to just have this, uh, you know, I'm thinking of sort of Serre and Deleuze and the like of these people who just had a almost, um, I could say encyclopedic knowledge could just draw from it and just walk yeah. into a room and go straight ahead. That's quite rare. I mean, he, yeah, he just had at that time published a big book on Shakespeare. So he was deeply in this work and he could just uh, use this treasure and all these insights uh, to make us uh, curious, the students curious about what Shakespeare has to tell us today. Okay. So move, moving just in before we get into you know strictly Girardian theory, I have to ask you the Hermetics question, which I think will be quite interesting now because um, 
So you can add, you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Um, who do you pick? But as we're talking about Girard and Girard's theory, we can include Girard. But also this question is interesting because perhaps in your relationship with Girard, perhaps there were some people that he would have liked to have put into a room and, um, you know, perhaps that would, you know, I'm wondering if that's where you take the question is to see if there was mm -hmm. ever anyone Girard wanted to sort of... Um, you know, almost. I, I, I mean, I suppose I never talked about uh, to him about that, but I would suppose he would be very interested to have a conversation with those novelists that were part of his first book. You know, his first book came out of a of a real eager and deep reading of Cervantes, Stendhal, uh, Flaubert, Proust, and Dostoevsky. So probably to sit together with those uh, five and talk about his book and his insight because he was not so much interested in the difference between those, these quite different authors concerning language, culture, religious or uh, worldview background, quite different thinkers. But he saw that they all shared a deep insight into mimetic desire. So I think he would have... Uh, like to talk to them and uh, I mean my starting point to become a Schwartian scholar was also I read all the novels over a couple of years that were treated in the first book of Girard so that gave me a good background to understand this book a little bit better but I chose uh, different <laughs> different names. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was going to ask, you know, uh, who, who would you? Find yeah, uh, I mean, it was difficult to stay with three, of course, because I'm a very curious curious person myself, and so I, there are a lot of people I would like to talk a little bit longer. But if you ask me for three, I came up with Thomas Hobbes because that was the philosopher, political philosopher. With, with whom I was dealing over five years working on my dissertation. So it would be quite interesting <laughs> to get to get to talk at least for, for an hour or two to this guy. And then there was a philosopher woman who was influential on Shira, although he did not talk that much about her, but I was reading in the last 10 years a lot of her work. That's the French philosopher and mystic Simone Weil. Mm -hmm. And uh, currently I'm working on Mahatma Gandhi, who developed this concept of nonviolence. That's the reason why I'm currently in South Africa. And uh, dealing with Mahatma Gandhi is the trial to look a little bit more at the positive side of ways out of violent entanglements. So I think that would be a nice group. And uh, I mean, Simon Way would have... Uh, had a vague knowledge of what's going on in India at that time and heard about Mahatma Gandhi. Thomas Hobbes, of course, would be would have to be introduced to the other two, mm -hmm. but uh, Gandhi and Wei would vaguely know about Hobbes. And I would like to be the chair and the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the host of this meeting and introduce them to each other and tell them why it's for me interesting to have them together. I mean, that, that's interesting. I'm not too sure about Vale, and, and my reading of Hobbes is sort of the, just, I guess, the, you could almost call it the common one. But I think in terms of two uh, figures throughout history, Gandhi and, and Hobbes are almost extreme ends of how they would, you know, the the teleology of where they want to get to. Hobbes with the war against all and Gandhi with, as you say, a, a non-violent um, approach. I, where do you where do you think that where I do you mean, think they might find some middle ground? I mean, all of all three of them, including Simon Way, are very much interested in how we can have peace between human beings. Because Hobbes, of course, starts with the war of all against all as his a projection of a certain kind of natural stage. But of course, his Leviathan, his political philosophy is an attempt, how can peace be created? How can peace be uh, available, achieved? So in that sense, uh, there is a common denominator between Hobbes, Way and Gandhi. Of course, the, the, the ways, the, the means are quite different. Although they are, you, you would find here and there also 
some similarities. So it would be a nice a nice meeting between the the four of us. Okay. Okay. Well, Hobbs Hobbs comes in later on in relation to the scapegoat, but that's quite later on in terms of how the social contract comes about. Um, and perhaps mm-hmm. Vale and Gandhi will come in. But jumping, um, you know, and I think these figures definitely will come in, this idea of attaining peace is something to do with not being caught up in a certain pressure to do something on a social or collective level and also not offloading one's personal collective responsibility onto a scapegoat to justify some form of uh, idolatry or violence in that sense. So these are all sort of related to Girard. But I think to begin, you know, this was the big question for me is because mimesis or the, the theory of mimetics, Girard's theory of mimetics is commonly understood as this idea that we simply mimic one another. Somebody, we see a load of people doing something and we, we do it for the mere fact that everyone is doing it. And in that sense, it's sort of this positive feedback where we simply do something because others are doing it. Now, this seems to be the almost the mimetic theory of mimetic. It's the one that's caught on and it's it seems almost too simple to be true. So, you know, my first question is simply to ask you is, as someone who's studied with the Girard and has written a book on this topic, is is that the truth behind the theory or is there more a, a deeper layer of complexity to it? Yeah, of course, there is a deeper <laughs> complexity to it. I mean, uh, it's it's true. The the first reaction of many people, if you introduce the main features, the main pillars of mimetic theories, that's banal. And what is the interesting thing about it? Because that's obvious and that's not so so difficult to understand and to discuss. And so we can move on. But if you think about the entanglements, the consequences of mimetic desire, of imitative desire, you will soon get to to deeper ground, to to very important anthropological questions, to interesting religious, political consequences. So what seems at first sight as quite a simple idea uh, unfolds itself as a very deep insight into the complexity of social relations, so to say. Mm-hmm. So do you think, you know, you mentioned the religious side of it and the religious connotations. And it seemed to me in reading your book and in doing this research that much of Girard is, is inherently religious. That's almost always there, even if he's mentioning it or not. And do you think that that simplified version that I mentioned is almost a secular version of memetics, which isn't really cor- correct because Girard is always viewing, Girard's worldview is always taking into account religious uh, religious means of understanding the world? This is a a quite tricky and complex question because uh, if we take Shiraz's first book, uh, the English title is The Seed Desire and the Novel. If you take this book, I would claim today, especially also with a hidden influence by Simon Weil, that this is a uh, a masterpiece of Christian spirituality. I even published an article where I make that strong claim. I mean, in the, the last chapter of this book shows that all these great uh, European novelists underwent uh, some form of conversion to understand their own entanglements in mimetic, imitative rivalries and overcoming their own pride and their own entanglements. And this uh, conversion uh, is can be seen as a religious conversion, uh, as in the case of Dostoevsky, but it's very similar and analogous in a, in a atheistic novelist like uh, Proust. So, so there is a deeper religious ground in this first book, but you don't see it. So, the, if you read it for the first time, probably and without looking at its religious underground you will probably, and this is not something bad, you will probably just discover these important anthropological insights. And one of the interesting things, one of the first thinkers who really got excited about this book was the Marxist and atheist uh, sociologist of religion, Lucien Goldman. And Lucien Goldman was the first who uh, got a chair in Brussels of sociology of literature. And there is a famous inaugural address by Lucien Goldman, 
where he says, my new institution in Brussels, it was in the early 60s, is built on three thinkers, on the work of three thinkers, Karl Marx, of course, because he was a Marxist sociologist. The second was the famous Marxist uh, literary theorist, George Lukács, a Hungarian. And the third thinker he mentioned was René Girard, who just published a first book and was a little bit uh, beyond his 40s. And so uh, how, how can it be that an atheist and Marxist sociologist uh, finds this uh, seminal book that at the same time can be seen as a masterpiece of Christian spirituality. So it not, it's not so much uh, that we have to go in a much obvious religious dimension to understand that, but to see maybe the deeper anthrop anthropology that Girard was always interested in. And we should not forget, although there are today Girardians who make a strong claim how deeply he was a theologian, he himself always said, I am an anthropologist. And I can, of course, uh, he was very much uh, engaged in understanding the Bible and his later work has a lot of important religious insights, but he always said, you know, I'm not a theologian, so I, I'm not an expert on grace, on the mysteries, but I think I would like to uncover the anthropology that is so important for doing a good theology. So he very often quoted Simon Weiss' insight that the Gospels are first, first of all an anthropology and not a theology. So therefore, we should not divide those two things in, uh, in too strongly and make too much about, about it. I would say a proper understanding may show that, uh, that there is not that big divide between secular and, and religious. I see, I see. So both of those can really, really assimilate they can together. Converge, yeah. yeah, for Girard yeah. under what we could call a Girardian anthropology that really yeah. the same sort of functions and the same modes of understanding are actually yeah. prevalent in, in both in this anthropology. I mean, he said once uh, he sees himself as an apologist of a Christian anthropology. And I would say a good anthropology cannot exclude the religious dimension in a very broad uh, sense understood of human life. And a good theology is, is highly, uh, it's highly recommended for a good theology to have a good grounding in anthropology, not to jump too quickly into heaven or into the realm of just ideas or, or whatever. Okay, okay. So before I sort of tackle this next question, which is related to the religious aspect of, you know, how we can overcome uh, mimetic theory, would you, would you sort of say that my, my definition earlier on of, of mimetic theory was, was correct, or did I miss a few, a few key features out? I mean, uh, it's important. Uh, there's one thing that is very important to understand Shiraz's understanding of mimesis or imitation, because imitation was a key topic of Western philosophy from Aristotle and Plato onward, Plato onwards. So that's not an astonishing thing, and you find it in literature, you find it in a famous work of Erich Auerbach. So mimesis imitation was discussed for a very long time. What is new, new about Shiraz that he, for the first time, understood a close connection between desire and imitation. So uh, his insight that he got from those novelist, novelists was that uh, as soon as our basic needs are fulfilled, we still have desires. And most of the time, we do not really know what we should wish for. So we look at our peers, we look at people we admire, we look at our neighbors, and then we want to have the same thing as those neighbors, neighbors or peers. And I came across already a couple of years ago insights in the work of Plato, but also in Augustine, who clearly understood as a key feature of human life that we human beings imitate what we adore. We imitate what we adore. And I think we can observe that in our own lives, we can observe that throughout history. So it's very difficult not to imitate what we deeply adore. 
and this is also maybe a core of uh, an anthropological uh, anthropological core of, of uh, religious theory to imitate what we adore. So, so going from this the Girardian desire, then did he see that as having detrimental effects socially? Or did it, you yeah, know, did, did... of course. For, first of all, I mean, that's very important. And I repeat that again and again, because it's often misunderstood. Very often, uh, people reach Ra as a negative uh, ontology, as a thinker or only interested in conflict, violence, apocalyptic uh, destruction and so on. And this is not completely wrong, but it's uh, a second stage. The first stage is that mimetic desire mirroring other people is a fundamental feature of human life. We could not become human beings without mirroring the thinking, the language, the being of others. So growing up, becoming a human being means mirroring other people. And uh, for that reason, uh, Shirar is completely right to claim in one of his books that mimetic, mimetic desire is intrinsically good. And, and this, has, this sentence, I repeat that sentence again and again, because only if you really accept this premises that mimetic desire is intrinsically good, then you can uh, look at what Shirar has to say about the temptations, about the negative consequences that easily come along, not, not automatically, but easily uh, we can be caught up in mimetic rivalries, in violence, in mimetic entanglements, in envy, in jealousy, in revenge, in counter-violence and so on, out of this uh, mimetic mechanism. But it's not necessary, it's just uh, highly likely. Okay, so there is almost there is almost a split between that, um, you know, inherent mim mimetics where we have to, you know, survive and take part in society and we have to exist in some way uh, and, and we have to be a member of this collective to, as you say, get on and mature. But at the same time, it seems, you know, when you, when you mentioned sort of rivalry, envy, jealousy, hatred, it seems that there's an, emo an emotional aspect coming in. And is that for Girard artificially created from some sort of um, perhaps an institution or a social framework which wants to almost use this mimetic for its own end? Is that artificially created or is that developed somewhere else, this sort of emotional aspect where we begin to be angry or envious, etc.? I mean, I would say both in some way. Of course, there are cultures and frameworks and conditions that make envious behaviors more likely. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is also this just natural, nearly natural entanglement of human beings. I mean, uh, I think a little feeling of envious envy or jealousy, I at least feel every day a slight, slight attempts, slight attempts. You feel all the day because uh, as relational beings, we always are in connection with others and always uh, easily seen as do we have really the same as the others do we get the same chances or not so it's very difficult to imitate desire of the others and not get caught up in in envy jealousy and rivalry and so if you look at the great uh, masters of human wisdom, the great religious traditions, most of them deal with this temptation. And uh, the, the great masters tell us also, uh, even if you are 90, you still have to <laughs> work on those uh, challenges for, for your character. So growing up and mature means to, to get to know how to deal with those things. I mean, uh, that, that's, for instance, also a reading, a Shiradian reading of the life and uh, these life experiments of Mahatma Gandhi, who understood those temptations quite well and also tried in his own uh, life to find out ways to overcome it. So you, the more you are possessive, the, the more you are going for material goods or worldly positions, if, if you focus too much on those things, uh, it's it's necessarily that you get caught up in 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 entanglements and problematic rivalries with others. 
So this this then was why for Gerard he he saw Christianity as that means to overcome it. Was there a reason he specifically saw Christianity as you know the means for overcoming um, that emotional form of mimetic desire, as opposed to as you say other religious masters, perhaps Hermeticism touches on this, um, certain forms of other perennialism touches on this emotional thing. I mean, uh, he grew up in uh, at least half Christian family, so his mother was quite devout Catholic. His father was anti-clerical secular, so he had both these uh, sides in his own family. So for for when he uh, so until the later thirties, after he his young life, he lost uh, belief in 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 Christianity and religion, and it was his work on his first book, the final chapter, so to say, is also a biographical conversion in himself when he himself turned uh, back to religion more to the side of his own mother. So I would say uh, to go deeper into his own religious upbringing and his own tradition is just a natural step. I mean, uh, if you find in your own tradition uh, those uh, possibilities to overcome uh, rivalries, envy, and and jealousy. Uh, I think that's that's just the natural, most natural way to do. And as I see him in that direction. Also, the the authors, of course, that he read those novelists were part of the Western tradition. And uh, for instance, in the case of Cervantes or or also Dostoevsky clearly inspired by Christianity and also Bruce, who was an agnostic, uh, you see clearly the Christian background. So he he just uh, got to a deeper understanding of the uh, of a Christianity that was, of course, part of the Western tradition. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe in his later systematizations of his insights, he sometimes overdid it a little bit in the sense that he claimed not always, and and, uh, there are also uh, doors to open in a broader direction, but when he claims the superiority of Christianity, so to say, or when he said sometimes only Christianity solves those problems, I think he's overdoing a little bit the way he found in his own life, and which is which is a good way. And I, I myself am a Catholic theologian, and I would not say that you cannot find in the Christian tradition these, uh, these uh, advices and, and these role models to, to go to a good way. But I would say, and this is also building up on Shirah, if Shirah's ins- anthropological insight is really an insight into the anthropology of human beings, it would just as be natural to find similar insights in all the great traditions of uh, of the world. And if you talk to specialists about Buddhism, or you engage with Gandhi, or with with uh, Muslim thinkers, uh, Jewish thinkers, uh, you will find a lot of similar ways. Not this, not the same, but addressing similar problems and looking for for solutions in, in a in a parallel way, so to say. I guess that's a, that's a really interesting point, though, because you sort of, um, to play, uh, quite ironically, to play devil's, devil's advocate here, you know, when we, when we look at um, religions, almost going from, a, I'm not a Marxist, but going from that Marxist famous quote of uh, religion is the opium of the masses, you know, that itself would be religion with its rituals and its tradition, that each religion is its own sort of, closed mimetic loop where people get caught up in it how for Girard can we sort of get beneath these or or use something from within a collective mimetic uh sort of feedback and use that to actually overcome the mimesis itself if you see what I mean so when you're within Christianity or whether you're within a religion you are doing something collectively you are imitating certain things how can for Girard we use something in that to be to be to overcome it, to overcome the actual mimesis I mean, itself. The the most important thing is or, or what Shira would immediately respond, there is no way out of mimesis. Because uh, that would mean but now we have to look a little bit deeper into the 
broader meaning and understanding of mimesis because uh, to get out of mimesis would be to get out of relations, to get out of affinities with other people, with models and so on. So he would say the most important thing is what kind of models do you choose for your own way of life? And so as a Christian, he referred, especially in later writings again and again to Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ's way of life is not acquisitive, it's not a greedy uh, greedy way of life. It's not focused on material things or worldly success. So if you follow his life in your own life, uh, it's, it's less likely to get uh, caught up in mimetic rivalry and jealousy, uh, envy or uh, uh, fights over material possessions or worldly positions. So it's almost, it's almost like using mimesis against itself. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, ha, I mean, uh, to to think we can go beyond uh, mimesis in general uh, would mean you do it all out of your own strengths, and and uh, this is probably completely impossible. Here, here one could refer to Simon Way, who said, "You cannot be an egoist. It's impossible to be an egoist because then." Because we do not really believe in our inner strengths because we, we feel a certain lack in ourselves. And I mean, the, the, the most exciting and most difficult question is always the question, what is the deeper reason? What is the origin of our imitative behaviors? And Girard did not explore it very deeply, but he uh, took up... Uh, a concept of an atheist philosopher of Jean-Paul Sartre. So Jean-Paul Sartre talked about humanity's lack of being. So human beings have a lack of being, feel a lack of being. And Girard took that uh, concept of Sartre without uh, taking the whole of Sartre's philosophical background. So if you read uh, Girard's understanding of this lack of being, you are reminded of Kierkegaard's insight that we are creatures and meaning that we are creatures means we are not, not autonomous self-created beings who are completely in control of ourselves, but we are dependent. We are not in this world already fulfilled. So we are longing for a fulfillment that is probably impossible as long as we live in this world. And uh, the second thing, I would like to mention is because I listened to one of your podcasts before, to the session on Ernest Becker. And it's very interesting to study Shira and Becker because I think Becker's insight into what human mortality means is a very good explanation what uh, the lack of being means. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can, I mean, I can observe it in my own life. I read it in all the great literature and I see it all over the place. Uh, we all feel a certain lack. We all feel incompleteness. But we look at other people and often we assume other people don't have this incompleteness. Others don't feel that lack that we feel. And so uh, we imitate others or, or take others as models because we feel they are already uh, complete, so to say. And, it, and it, it takes a little bit longer or it takes a, a, growing, a growing up to a mature person to realize that we all have this lack of being. So we should not worry too much about this lack of being, should see it as just a consequence of being a creature. And then look at the the religious and philosophical uh, traditions of deeper wisdom, because they all respond to that that question. So so therefore, uh, Schwarz's answer to the question is to take... The, the, the proper model. And when I talk about a model, we should always also avoid a misunderstanding of imitation in the sense of a narrow uh, blind copying. So uh, following mimetically or imitating a model does not mean we have to copy the hairstyle or the, uh, the outlook. 
I mean, if I think about those things, I'm immediately always reminded of the famous Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian, <laughs> when the people think you have to wear certain sandals and you have to wear certain clothes and do the right things. I mean, this is a caricature and funny. Uh, the in, in, in English, it's a little bit difficult to explain. In German, it's easier, and, and Immanuel Kant has uh, drawn on those words. In German, we have for imitation the word Nachahmung, and this can easily be understood as a blind, narrow copying, to be a copycat. But this is not the, the way out of uh, mimetic rivalries. The other term in German is Nachfolge. That means to follow to follow another person, but not in the sense we copy the other person, but we follow the other person to the source that he uh, in, in such way draw, draws on. Uh, and the English term, which now has not no longer this, this word nach, is imitative, is discipleship. So the, in the Christian tradition, nachfolge means discipleship. And discipleship doesn't mean we copy uh, the, the hairstyle of Jesus. We even don't know who he looked like. But uh, to live uh, a life according to his spirit, which might be different in the 21st century than it was at Jesus' time in, in, in many ways. But it can be in a deeper sense, nevertheless, be a following or discipleship. Uh, so do you think, do you think for Girard, that that differentiates the... the, the... The split there that you've created between the disciple and the imitative is where, and, and you know, imitation is where we'd find that emotional sort of violent, envious on the imitation side and on the discipleship is a more uh, an understanding, a peaceful, um, well, a potentially peaceful. And it's between those two modes, which do seem very alike, um, where we'd find this key difference in two types of memes. I mean, the, 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 the difference is not so much connected to the words because you can also find, uh, talk about a positive mimesis, a positive imitation. It, it's, it is really about, uh, about the model. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing, Shira uh, sometimes mentioned, and I like that distinction very much, between a guru, because uh, many, let's say, bad gurus, Uh, bad gurus uh, say in some way, try to be an original person, try not to be an imitator by imitating me because I'm really an original person. So this is kind of, you are immediately caught up in the trap because you imitate someone who uh, pretends to be imitating no one, but he needs, of course, his imitators, his followers, who have his own strong self-conviction. If you take as an example Jesus and many other uh, uh, great spiritual masters, Jesus never said, follow me because I am the original person. He said, follow me because I follow the Father. Mm -hmm. So he was someone who was not focusing egoistically on himself, who was not uh, uh, desiring greedily, but was himself a model that uh, showed to, uh, to the source of life, so to say, to, to Godfather, when we say it in, in more secular terms. So to, to follow in this direction, I think, is a way uh, leading out of mimetic rivalries and destructive imitative behavior, because uh, you are not focusing on an object that cannot be divided, I mean, this was also a question uh, for a very long time in the Christian tradition, but also in many other traditions. We need imitation, but how should we imitate without getting into envy and rivalry? So I was, for a couple of years ago, very interested. Uh, if you think about the early monastery, monasteries by the Benedictines, the, most of the uh, earliest Christian in the Western tradition, monks and monasteries and they of course had the, the, the question immediately in such a close community uh, should there be imitation should there be emulation in such a community or not if you have no emulation then the the people became lazy uh, indifferent uh, i mean such a community would quickly die out if you have however a hot envious 
relationships, this community will also destroy itself quickly. So it's very important in on uh, what is the object, what is the deeper goal of your emulation. So the the tradition, this was interestingly until the 17th century, until Thomas Hobbes always distinguished between good emulation and destructive envy. Mm-hmm. And structurally, they are very close because you you are influenced by the other. But the, the real difference is what is the object of your emulation? So if you emulate doing good to others, if you emulate uh, a good spiritual life, if you emulate the desire for God, you are not automatically uh, prone to violence. But if you emulate uh, the other to become rich or the most famous or the best professor or the, the best uh, student of mimetic theory, uh, then you are easily uh, in trouble. So, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, you mentioned a little uh, a while back that, that there's certain truths here in, in all religions in a certain sense in relation to this, in, in this following a discipleship or a spirit instead of the sort of the material, you know, uh, negative mimesis. Do you think then in Girard that, that it's there's a possible compatibility with a, a perennial truth, not in um, sort of a definable this is the exact place we're heading to, we all have to do this, but a perennial truth in method, you know, in the way that we should approach the world, in a sense. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not uh, too much familiar with perennialism and perennial philosophy. And so far as I know, Shira was always careful. So he didn't talk about that. And uh, one or two occasions, he was more careful not to be mixed up with this tradition. I myself think there is a, a deeper there is a deeper connection to that. And if we think that there is a spiritual anthropological core, what it means to be a human being, uh, then I think that could be the basis of what I myself now try to do and to explore a little bit more closely to see how this core uh, develops in the different uh, religious traditions in our world. But uh, we need to work a little bit more uh, to, there has to be, there has to be done more work to explore that question. That's an interesting question. I mean, not to see the religious and wisdom traditions as totally different, but look at the, at the deeper core uh, where they are united. That's, a, that's again very close what what Gandhi uh, understood because he always said beyond all the different religions and confessions there is a deeper religion uh, that unifies all those different religions. He talked about re- uh, the different religions as branches on on one tree, and this this tree is I think close to what perennialism was looking for and what what I'm now. Uh, very interested in. Do you think that's different from you know ecumenicism that that in in that sense? Because I think there would be disagreements from sort of more orthodox branches. They would stake their claim in a way and and not you know aren't so open to that um, you know compatibility amongst all religions. Mm-hmm. I uh, I don't think I I'm not able to to answer okay. that question because uh, I would need to 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 read those arguments and those theses uh, more closely and see is there a difference. I, I'm just I'm just saying that I think there is a deeper uh, unity between traditions, and uh, uh, I mean. And of course, that doesn't mean relativism. I mean, it's a tricky field because there are a lot of misunderstandings possible if you uh, focus strongly on on the unity. But I'm interested in the unity without getting caught up in the misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. But uh, we need to do more work to, to to unfold it in a in a very clear and not uh, misunderstood way. Okay. Okay. I mean, staying on the staying on the the current of religion. I mean, one of the really interesting things that you made clear in, in your book um, is that violence comes, is, is that for Girard, violence is prior to religion, which I think is almost counterintuitive to what most people would 
see in terms of mimesis that you'd have the mimesis first everyone collects under a, uh, or, or sort of utilizes a scapegoat to to um, justify their violence and then the violence is undertaken so the violence is secondary but actually Gerard always makes it clear that violence for him is this is this sort of a foundational aspect of reality for, for Gerard? I like very much the title, the original title of his second book that was the uh, seminal book in regard to violence re re and religion. Uh, the French title was La Violence et les Sacrés and the English, proper English translation is Violence and the Sacred. So violence comes first. And the second term is not so much religion, but the sacred. And this is a special meaning uh, how early religions dealt with human violence. And it's it's funny uh, because the last 20 years I was working in very different circumstances again and again on violence and religion. And I was invited to lectures and seminars. And the invitation was always, would you like to give us a lecture on religion and violence? And I sometimes then said, no, I do not do lectures on religion and violence. But if you if if it doesn't matter for you, I can do something on violence and religion. And mm. most of the time I was accepted. But it's really interesting. I mean, the book that uh, my book, Transforming uh, the Sacred into Saintliness, came out in a series of Cambridge University Press with the title, Elements in Religion Violence. And I worked at the Princeton Center for Theological Inquiry in a research seminar for half a year on religion and violence. So I always have to uh, work on religion and violence. Yeah, so that's the framework. But I insist we have to understand human vi violence first and then relate it to religion. And it's not so much my concern to whitewash religion and to say religion has nothing to do with violence, but to, I mean, if we, if we really would think that religion is the main cause of violence, first of all, it's very difficult to get to a definition of religion. And secondly, would you think, or can one really think that if all religion would be abolished and all religion would disappear, there would no longer be any violence between human beings. I mean, this is a joke. This is hardly possible. So therefore, we have to understand uh, the deeper roots of, of uh, human violence and um, mimetic rivalry is a, is a key source or as the late um, uh, rabbi, former chief rabbi of, of Great Britain, uh, Jonathan Sachs in his seminal book, Not in God, God's Name Claimed, and he refers to Shira, uh, sibling ri rivalry. We should not overlook how sibling rivalry is a very powerful source of human violence, although this is not a nice insight, but one that we should not uh, uh, overlook too quickly. So we have to understand uh, deeper reasons and causes of human violence, and then we can look in what way can uh, and historical in what way was religion a helpful tool to overcome those problems? In what way was religion part of this problem? In what uh, way religion can incite those problems and even uh, make it more dangerous and uh, leading to an apocalyptic version of destruction? So I think that would be a proper way. The other way is just uh, to blame religion for problems that we all cause in our relationships. Which would sort of actually be uh, an articulation of, of the scapegoat theory, just using religion as the scapegoat for saying that's where violence is, we need to. Yeah, right, but right. then But then in doing that, they're sort of begetting the same violence because if you're saying we need to get rid of religion because that will get rid of violence, then you have to be violent unto religion to do that. So you are still stuck in that same mimesis in a way. Right, 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 right. And uh, I mean, scapegoating is always also a deferral of our my own involvement. So in my book, I refer to a famous question by the Swiss writer Max Frisch, who sometimes in his diaries made a list of interesting questions one should ask himself and others. And one of his most intriguing questions was, have you ever killed a human being? 
And if you have not done that, can you explain why? So this is a question. I refer in my book to a, a study and survey that has been done in American universities where at least uh, among male students, I think it's up to 80-90% that at least in the last year they had uh, once at least a fantasy to get rid of a of an ugly and not nice person. It's a little bit lower among female students. Uh, but we, we all have our temptations towards violence. And I mean, it's interesting to discuss with people this question. I mean, why have, you, have we not killed someone? Maybe because we are cowards. We don't want to get caught up in a prison and uh, that's, that's not so nice. And so what, what, if, you, what's your answer? If you don't mind me asking, why, why haven't you killed someone? I mean, uh, <laughs> probably the first thing is just what I said. I, I would not be very happy to spend 20 years in prison. I mean, this is not a life I'm looking forward to. I mean, I hope I also uh, developed some, some insights and some uh, strengths in myself to overcome first impulses to kill others. I mean, easily when I drive on the street and in traffic, I'm most <laughs> prone to kill others that make me angry and so on. But uh, of course, I I, I I I know such impulses. I know my own violence and my and I think it's important to to look also into your own uh, negative possibilities and, and temptations. That's the first thing uh, if you want to study violence uh, to to take this more uncomfortable unpleasant look okay and this you know just to lead us back around to that the the first room with Hobbes this scapegoat me mechanism for you um, develops the social contract that sort of anchor which the entire socius is is almost bordering themselves against? Is that how it develops a social contract or is there something else going on there? I mean, the, the interesting thing is uh, that the social contract theory in some way Hobbes is the first, of, although he's a very interesting uh, first thinker in that tradition, because this tradition in some way claims that human beings were rationally able to sit together and solve the problem of violence by establishing a state, by establishing a contract that uh, is the foundation of the basic rules for living together. But uh, I mean, if you just take Hobbes and uh, Hobbes claims that there was a war of all against all, so a deep crisis, a group in frenzy, and how can a group in frenzy sit calmly together and create a nice plan how they will live together more peacefully? This is not possible. This is just a construction, uh, a later reson rationalization. So uh, I think Schirar's claim that an unconscious mechanism was the first uh, possibility to overcome uh, a crisis of rivalries in a tribal group by not knowing what they were doing, by creating the sacred, uh, a, relig a religion, uh, out of men, a religion that in some way uh, is able to to project its its violence inside the group to a scapegoat that is later divinized. I mean, one of the most difficult questions, although it's not so difficult if one explains it carefully, is that Chirac claims for the early religions, really the early religions, today we would call it the pre-exil religions, that there is a, a double transference going on. So first of all, the group thinks that there is an evil person in our group who calls, causes all the trouble. That's a scapegoat. And that's what we know also in our own life, in every family, in every classroom, in every faculty, you have scapegoats. And we always think if this scapegoat, if we can get rid of this scapegoat, all the problems will be solved until we find out that we need another scapegoat afterwards because the troubles remain. But for those early cultures, 
they turn the scapegoat who is expelled or killed into the divinity of the tribe because they also think that the beast that after his expulsion was finally uh, present in the group is also provided by the scapegoat. So the scapegoat is the cause of all the troubles and the provider of peace. And this double transference, which turns these early uh, divinities in uh, ambiguous divinity who is violent and peaceful at the same time, and we go back to historical studies, religious studies, we see that early divinities had this double face. So this uh, positive transference, that is something that we do not understand any longer in our modern world. We do not understand how a person that we see as just a troublemaker can, can also be seen uh, as the giver of peace and harmony and, and so on. So this is uh, the creation of the sacred. That is a first solution to human violence. It, it creates a of course, a uh, uh, cultural violence, but that keeps the outbreak of another, of a much more chaotic and destructive violence at bay. It contains violence in the double sense of the of the word contain. And uh, so, this is the better explanation of uh, the same kind of understanding that was also tried to be explained with the help of the social contract theory. But now uh, let's come back to Hobbes because Hobbes is uh, too sharp a thinker and philosopher not to also refer at least indirectly to the scapegoat mechanism because he was thinking about he, uh, the thesis of Hobbes was as long as there is no sword, as long as there is no sovereign, no power that can punish people who break the, the contract, who break the rules, as long as this sovereign is not established, uh, the words will be count for nothing. And uh, But how, <laughs> how can then the first contract be created? Uh, they cannot come out of words. And he said, well, uh, and he, of course, also studied history and history of religion and traditions. He makes a very interesting observation that he said, well, an oath, a sacred oath could be the first possibility. So if a group gets together and said, uh, we, we swear an oath, uh, meaning if one breaks the rules, God will punish this person so that's a, a kind of uh, warranty uh, that words are kept, although the political sovereign is not yet established. And where he refers to this insight that sacred oath may be a first human tool uh, to make a society possible, he refers to uh, uh, history in the Roman history, uh, a, con uh, a contract between the Romans and Alba Longa, the Albanians in the early Roman history. And when they did this contract, when they did this treaty, they killed a pig. And they said, I kill now, so this was a ritual, a bloody ritual, I kill this pig. And whoever uh, breaks the rules afterwards should be killed by God or by the group or whatever, as we kill now the pig. I mean, this is a more, a more convincing type of bringing order in society. And of course, he uh, sacred rose and this ritual, of course, have been uh, the case throughout human history. And the scapegoat mechanism would be even a, a layer lower that explains the development and the, uh, the offspring of those bloody rituals. So therefore, in Hobbes, you have uh, the first theorist of uh, social contract. But if you read his Leviathan carefully, you see also that he has a vague knowledge that on a deeper layer, there is the scapegoat mechanism as the first uh, establishment of order in human groups that were in, in rivalrous uh, chaos. So that's that has to be a, an almost a mimetic acceptance of a even just a possibility of something transcendent which is above everyone. Otherwise, 
there you know otherwise as you say no su- there is no superior superiority which actually would mm-hmm. count for anything yeah Yeah, I mean, that would, of course, be a, a social type of transcendence, as it was described by Emil Durkheim. We should not immediately mix it up with a, a transcendence in the deeper religious meaning. I mean, there is maybe a connection there, but this would be another uh, podcast to explore mm-hmm. those things more carefully. But of course, that's a first type of Uh, of transcendence that helps to uh, get the group going. And I mean, the, the, the thing that uh, I would like to underline is just that, of course, also the uh, social contract theory talks about the creation of the transcendence. But it cannot happen in the way that people just by reason create that. That must be deeper psychological mechanisms that create this uh, self-establishment of a society. And in hopes you have both, and therefore I think he's, in this sense, a seminal thinker. Okay. Okay. Um, is there anything key you would like to add that you feel we've uh, we've we've missed? Obviously, there's a lot we could talk about, but uh, in relation to sort of no. perhaps approaching mimetic theory. No, I think uh, for today we have covered the most important things. I mean, the only thing that I forgot was to mention the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments because this is also one of the reasons that the dense commandment is really uh, underlining the danger of mimetic rivalry, because the Ten Commandments said, do not con- covet the, the woman, or today we would say the partner of your neighbor, do not covet whatever the neighbor has. So uh, the danger of mimetic rivalry is already visible in one of the oldest laws, so to say, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And again, you can find similar insights in other traditions. So that's maybe a good concluding point. We conclude with the last dense commandment, (laughs) and that is also a good conclusion for this podcast about Shiraz mimetic theory. Definitely. Um, Yeah, okay. Uh, Wolfgang Palava, thanks very much. Thanks for having me.